It's good to be back at Seacoast. How are you doing today? I was about to say tonight. Oh, I have no idea what time zone I'm in. I do consider Seacoast my other home, so it's always like, uh, I don't feel like a guest speaker. I don't feel like a guest. I feel like the family, you know? Uh, so it's good to be here. <clears throat> and um, you know you're getting old when the kid that you knew when he was two and a half now has kids of his own. And you really know you're an old dad when two of Cody's kids are the same age as two of your kids. I'm 48 and I have a four-year-old and five-year-old. When my four-year-old graduates from high school in <clears throat> 2032, I will be celebrating my 45th high school reunion. <laughs> old dads rule! I will be the hippest 63-year-old, however, anywhere at least in my own mind. So, today I want to talk to you about how to be a persuasive Christian. And the reason for this topic is because, I don't know if you know this or not, but our, our country seems to be deeply polarized about politics. And it affects pretty much everything, right? If you go online, if you go onto the media, if you just talk with people, there's, there's no quicker way to get into a yelling match than simply to say how you voted in 2016. Pew Research data backs this up. Pew Research Center found that even before the 2016 campaign, Americans were increasingly ideologically polarized along partisan lines. That means people are becoming more conservative and Republican or more liberal and Democrat. And look, I mean, can we be adults? Uh, people are going to have different opinions. They're going to disagree about politics. That's okay. You can disagree without being disagreeable. Unless you're in America in 2017, in which case there seems to be no way to disagree without yelling, okay? And, and in and of itself, as an American, I would be very concerned about that. But I'm going to tell you what concerns me even more as a Christian and as a minister, and it's this. That polarization tracks with religious affiliation. So Republicans are increasingly identified as conservative and religious, and Democrats are increasingly identified as liberal and non-religious. And so that means when you start talking politics or public policy or all the cultural issues that we talk about, there's a lot of noise if you try to get to a conversation about Jesus. And that really worries me. I think that my Christian faith should influence everything that I do, including voting. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is going to affect how I vote, how I treat people, how I treat the poor, how I treat immigrants, how I treat my fellow citizens, how I... I get that. What worries me is that increasingly in America, with this deep political polarization and this deep partisan, affiliate, uh, partisan polarization that there is an increasing religious polarization too so that politics is starting to overwhelm faith or faith is being reduced to politics. And that's really worrisome to me. Because in, if in order to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus, I have to whack through the weeds of all of their political and cultural opinions too, that's just a lot of distractions. And so today I want to talk about how to be a persuasive Christian. I think a lot of this is going to help you maybe deal with how you deal with the political polarization. But my, my biggest concern here is that as Christians, we learn how to talk persuasively about why we follow Jesus. 
And so in order to talk to you about this, I want to go to a passage of Scripture where Jesus is talking with somebody across the, the lines of a deep polarization. It's in John chapter 4. If you have your Bible, turn there. And we're going to be talking about seven things that Jesus does that we ought to imitate with regard to persuading people. And so John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to this woman. She's a Samaritan woman. I'll explain what that means in just a second. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came out for water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You want to talk about polarization. The relationship between Jews and Samaritans was a deeply polarized issue in Jesus' day. There's a history of violence. There's a history of disagreement. There's a long history between Jews and Samaritans that really made it so that they were two camps that were just yelling across the lines at each other. They didn't really have a whole lot of dealings with one another at a personal level. And so Jesus finds himself in Samaria at this particular village, and he's tired and he's thirsty, and he has to have a conversation with this woman. And what I want you to see here is the first thing, if you are going to become a persuasive Christian, the first thing that you have to do is be willing to cross boundaries. And I don't just mean boundaries of geography, okay? As a Christian, you need to learn to identify those boundaries. They may be physical, they may be geographical, they may be mental, emotional, cultural, whatever. You have to learn to look at those boundaries and say, I'm willing to cross them in order to be a persuasive person, in order to try to convince them of, of the way that I see things, or to try and tell them about Jesus. And so as we look at Jesus, we see him crossing five boundaries. There's the geographical boundary. He's, he's in Judea, in Jerusalem, and he wants to go north to Galilee, where he lives and has his base of operations. To do that, he has to go through Samaria. So he crosses a geographical boundary. But just like today, geographical boundaries often are other boundaries. And so there's an ethnic boundary. The Samaritans were the descendants of the, 12, of the 10 tribes in the north of Israel, and after 722, a lot of those people had been deported by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians imported a lot of other people from the ancient Near East to live there. And the people who remained from the ten tribes intermarried with these other people, and they formed a new ethnic group. And from a Jewish perspective, they were half-breeds. But worse, there was a religious boundary because the people who remained up there in that part of Samaria continued to practice a form of biblical religion that was only centered on the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so from a Jewish perspective that has everything from Joshua to Malachi in the Old Testament, these Samaritans were heretics. So there's a geographical boundary, there's an ethnic boundary, there's a religious boundary, and then in a deeply traditional culture in, in the Mediterranean region, a man typically did not meet alone with a woman who he was not related to by either marriage or birth. And yet Jesus finds himself talking alone with a woman at the well. And so he's crossing the boundary of sex and gender assumptions and gender roles as well. But there's a fifth boundary here that's one that we often don't get. Because if you look at this story, this woman is at the well by herself drawing water at noon. 
Now, if you've ever been anywhere in the Mediterranean, you know it's hot, right? This is not a place where if you have to go to the water, to the well for water every day, you don't want to go at the hottest part of the day. So typically the women in the village would go either in the early part of the morning, just after sunrise, or in the late part of the evening, just before sunset, when it would be cooler. And they never went by themselves. They always went together because it's a great opportunity to complain about husbands, okay? <laughs> Men have their own things where they complain about wives, but the well was where you got the village gossip, okay? The fact that this woman is at the well alone at noon indicates, and we'll see why in a second, it indicates that this woman was considered by her village to be a shameful woman. Jesus crosses the boundary of reputation. He is considered an honorable male. She is considered by her own village a shameful female, which is why she's at the well alone at noon. But Jesus wants to have a conversation with her. So he doesn't care where she is, it doesn't care, he doesn't care what her ethnicity is, doesn't care what her religious convictions are, isn't concerned about her sex, and also isn't concerned about her reputation because he has a message that he wants to give to her. And the question that you and I have to ask if we want to be persuasive in our society, if we want to persuade people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is, we have to ask what boundaries are we willing to cross? Are you willing to get out of your bubble? If you're an old dude like me, are you willing to talk to millennials with all their skinny jeans and strange haircuts and, you know, whatever? Actually, I, this is a funny thing, is, is that old people like me, old, older Gen Xers and baby boomers are always making fun of millennials. I got to tell you, I've worked with a lot of millennials. They're awesome. I mean, I have never met a bad millennial. Now, baby boomers, on the other hand, they're a disaster, okay? <laughs> it's a different story. Here's the thing. You've got to get out of your bubble. If you're not willing to get out of your bubble, whatever that may be, if you're a Christian and you have no non-Christian friends, you're doing it wrong. You're not getting out of your bubble. If you're a Republican and you have no Democratic friends, you're doing it wrong. You're not getting out of your bubble. If you live in Southern California, there's more racial and ethnic diversity in the LAX terminal than there is in my entire city of Springfield, Missouri. If you're in Southern California and you're white and the only people that you know are white and you're in Southern California, you're doing it wrong, all right? So cross boundaries. You cannot be a persuasive person until you leave where you're comfortable and at home emotionally and intellectually and go to where somebody else is comfortable and at home emotionally and intellectually. And Jesus does that. Second thing that Jesus does is that he gets real, it's real about himself. You know, sometimes when we th- we're trying to convince people, we, we try and front an image of ourselves as happy, shiny people who have all the answers and are never wrong and just our lives are great, right? The Gospel of John begins in chapter 1, verse 1, by making an astounding statement about Jesus. It said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him Nothing was made that hasn't been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. You skip down a few verses to verse 14, and it then makes a really astonishing statement. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. God took on a human nature in Jesus Christ. There's a sixth boundary, evidently, that Jesus crossed, which is the boundary between heaven and earth, all in order to persuade us to follow him. The problem is that oftentimes Christians know that Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate, but we, we don't really 
make much of his human nature. We just kind of think that like Jesus is a cyborg. You know, there's like a divine robot inside, but he's got skin on the outside. Never tired, never wrong, never thirsty, never hungry, whatever. John tells us explicitly that Jesus was very human. And so he's traveling on foot 60 miles from Jerusalem to Galilee over hills and mountains. Guess what? He gets tired. And he gets tired and he's hungry and he's thirsty. And what's interesting about Jesus is he's not ashamed or afraid to share his need and to put himself at the mercy of a stranger. So he says to him, will you give me something to drink? I have found in my own life that people really begin to listen to me most when they realize that I also experience problems. Uh, 20 years ago, I had a bout with clinical depression that pretty much was horrible. It was the worst time of my life. Looking back, it was the best time of my life because I grew so much during that time. But anytime I'm with other Christians and I share that, it's like, oh, Christians can get depressed? Yes. Christians can get depressed too. They, Christians can have addiction issues. They can have horrible relationships. They can have, you've got to let people in to see those problems. I, also, I don't know if you've noticed, my neck is pretty stiff. It's not just that I'm an opinionated guy. It's actually fused. I have spinal arthritis, and it just sort of fused on its own. I had a lady from the church a couple years ago say, you know, George, you always look mad. <laughs> I'm actually a fairly happy guy. I mean, I wouldn't say like I'm ecstatic, but I mean, I'm generally on an even keel. I said, well, actually, the problem is I'm always in pain. Oh, okay. When I tell people that, they get a different perspective of me. Why? Because I'm getting real about my own struggles, my own life. Jesus lets this woman into his life. He shows her a picture of his own struggle by saying, I'm thirsty and I need your help. If you want to persuade people, you can't just show up with all the answers and expect them to listen to you. Because people are persuaded by people whom they are in relationship with. And relationship is give and take. It's mutuality. It's reciprocity. It's I have something you need and you have something I need. And so once you've crossed those boundaries, then you need to get real and let people into your own life with your struggles. You understand what I'm saying? Because that establishes a relational bond by which you then can become somebody who can speak into the issues of their life. The third thing that Jesus does is he asks a question. I think we often have this picture of Jesus kind of doing what I'm doing now, standing in front of a crowd and talking at them. And there is a place in the Gospels where Jesus does talk to large groups. But typically, Jesus is actually interacting with smaller groups, and he often uses questions. Stan Guthrie, in his book, the, All That Jesus Asks, tells us that there are 295 questions that Jesus himself asks in the Bible, in the Gospels. And it's great because questions draw people out of themselves. They don't have to answer. If, if they answer your question, they're giving permission to you to go further in the conversation. Questions draw people out of themselves. It, it makes them state their opinions. It makes them clarify their thoughts. It honors the fact that they have something to say, and people don't want to be lectured at. They want to be listened to. I have a nine-year-old son. He's in third grade. I may be the only 48-year-old who's not a teacher who does third-grade homework on a regular basis. And, you know... I, I, I don't really see myself, I didn't see myself at this point in my life having to do third grade math, right? Or third grade English homework. And I'm an editor and my son is an atrocious speller. I mean, atrocious, embarrassing. I have no idea, he must have gotten that from his mother because it's, it's not for me. So when I'm doing this homework, what's my temptation? My temptation is 
to give him the answers because that's quicker, it's easier, and I'm always right, right? But notice that when you lecture at somebody, you impart information. But that information isn't transformative because nothing changes in their brains. When you ask questions and make other people think, when you give them the freedom to respond, when you say what you have to do or say is worth listening to, all of a sudden their understanding grows. So I will ask questions like, Reese, do you think that 18 minus 12 is 4? Well, he does the math, and no, actually, it's 18 minus 12 is 6. Okay, Reese, do you really think that chicken is spelled C-H-I-K-I-N? Clearly, he's been watching too many Chick-fil-A commercials. Um, <laughs> so we'll go through this, and it's interesting. He'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, because I want to increase his understanding. You want to persuade people. Let them talk to you. Ask them questions, and that's what Jesus does. And so the first two things that you want to do, you, you want to cross a boundary. You want to get out of your bubble. You want to be real about your own struggles because people will be persuaded by you to the extent that they have a relationship with you. And then you want to ask questions. But here's the next thing that you need to do if you want to be persuasive. And you need to go deeper. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you, Jesus had said, I forgot to read this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, which is a Hebrew idiom for spring water, the best water, the freshest water, okay? So the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank for himself as did also his sons and livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up in eternal life. When I was diagnosed with spinal arthritis in 1990, the problem was that I was presenting neck stiffness and lower back pain. Bad neck stiffness, I mean, my neck wasn't as stiff as it is now, but it was difficult to turn, and bad low back pain. Those were the symptoms. So I went into the doctor. The doctor did some blood work, and he said, oh, you've got what's called ankylosing spondylitis. Now, what's interesting is that had the doctor just said, oh, well, you've got neck stiffness and low back pain, I will, uh, I'll just give you an anti-inflammatory and a muscle relaxer. That would have treated the symptoms, Right? But symptoms are symptoms of something. And a good doctor goes deeper than the symptoms and say, what is it that's happening in your body that is causing this neck stiffness and lower back pain? And if you want to persuade people about anything, whether it's about Jesus or politics or whatnot, you have to go from a surface level until you're getting deeper into values and culture and the things that are truly important to them. And we see Jesus doing this because on the one hand, this conversation is about water, right? He's at a well, he asks for water. She says, okay, but you don't have anything to draw with. He said, well, if you knew who I am, then you would ask me for living water because I can give you living water and you'd never be thirsty again. So she still thinks he's talking about physical water. So that's the surface level of this conversation. But as you push down, why is it that she's so interested in this living water? Well, she says, so I won't ever be thirsty again and have to come back to this well. And you can almost hear the frustration in her voice. I won't ever have to come back to this well to draw water by myself 
at noon because nobody in my village will talk to me because I'm a shameful woman. And so there you've gone from the physical to the social emotional. There's a, a level of depth change. Why is it that she wants this better water? It's because she's tired of being alone and being ashamed or of being shamed by her village. But Jesus wants to push even farther. And so when he talks about living water, he's not merely talking about water. And he's not merely talking about this woman's social and emotional isolation from her village. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the kind of flourishing life that God wants to give you and me and everyone else, whereby we experience the love of God from the inside, and it just, it sort of bubbles up and bubbles out and changes everything that we do and say and feel. And so Jesus is going deeper. In your conversations with people, you need to get beyond the surface if you're going to be persuasive. Because very often in politics, People's political opinions are the reflection of deeper values, and those deeper values are the reflections of their hopes and fears. You want to change their mind about the policies, you have to address their hopes and fears. Same thing in religion. People's religious opinions, what they think, what they say, often are symptoms of other things that have happened in their life, and those are reflections of things that are happening at a very deep level of what they love, what they hate, what they hope for, what they fear. If you're going to be persuasive, you constantly have to be going deeper and deal with what's really driving people. And Jesus knew what this woman really wanted, but she didn't even know how to articulate was the kind of eternal life that God alone could give. So he's gone deeper. The next point is that you have to acknowledge pain. As soon as you begin talking about hopes and fears, you're going to start getting into people's sins and scars and shames and pains. And so notice what happens. He told her, go get your husband and come back. I don't, I'm not really sure why Jesus does this. I think it's maybe just a moment of prophetic, revelatory insight the Holy Spirit gives it. He says, hey, you know, let's, let's change the direction here. Let me, let me, let me open something up. So go and call your husband. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. You want to know why this woman was showing up alone at noon at the well? It's because of her sexual history. A lot of times we, as 21st century Westerners, with our ideas about the relationships between the sexes, we look at this Samaritan woman and we say, oh, she must have been a sexually immoral woman. Like she got married to number one and then number two came along and she said, oh, that guy's a better option, he's richer. Dump number one. Number two comes along. Oh, number three comes along. He's even richer. I'll dump number two and take number three. Then you get tired with the wealth and it's like, oh, number four, he's good looking and young. So I'll dump number three and take number four. And then number five is like, you know, he's young and dumb and it's, it's, it's fun and everything, but I need stability. So number five. And then number five, you're like, this is boring. So why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? I'll just live with a guy. Okay. That's, I think that that's the way we kind of view this woman when we hear that she's been divorced five times and is shacked up with the sixth guy. You have to think in terms of a very traditional, very patriarchal culture. I think the better way to read this passage is to say this woman was not a great sinner. This woman was probably someone who had been greatly sinned against. Because in a traditional Mediterranean culture, there wasn't equality between the sexes. Men were in charge. So you can imagine a picture whereby the man had married her, and then for whatever reason, he discarded her. 
So thankfully, she was able to find another husband. But then he became displeased with her and discarded her. Well, still somebody came along, and so she married him. But then at some point, he got ticked off and didn't like her, whatever, discarded her. And then four, and then five. And by the time she got through five husbands and five divorces, nobody wanted to marry her anymore because she wasn't respectable. But the loser at the end of the lane, who everybody avoided, he at least would allow her to live with him. And so here this woman isn't isolated and alone necessarily because she's been immoral or she's a great sinner. She's actually been the victim. Maybe that's the way we're supposed to read this passage. Either way, this woman's pain, this woman's shame, the thing that alienated her from her village, the thing that caused her to doubt her self-worth and to wonder where was God in all this, it was her sexual history. And Jesus doesn't come into the situation and say, you're horrible, you need to repent, whatever. He knew that she already felt the pain. All he did was non-judgmentally acknowledge that that was the issue. And sometimes you and me, when we are trying to persuade people to follow Jesus and we really get down to the nitty-gritty of a person's life where we recognize there's darkness and sin and shame and pain and scars, we're not called to condemn. We're not called to fix it. All we're called to do is acknowledge it without judgment. And that's what Jesus does. He acknowledges the pain. And this is where the, the conversation takes a weird turn because from one perspective, it looks like the woman is saying, whoa, you're starting to dig around in my sex life. No, thank you. Let's talk theology, right? Let's talk anything but me. And so here's, here's what happens now in the conversation. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. This is what I call the point where we lay foundations. Oftentimes when we want to persuade people, we want to immediately get to the nub of the argument, right? We want to lay out what you should believe, what you should do, and why. But the reality is a lot has to happen before you can get to the argument. Classic rhetoric is divided into three parts, ethos, pathos, and logos. Ethos has to do with the, the, the character of the speaker. Pathos has to do with the emotional buy-in of the audience. And logos has to do with the argument itself the matter that you're disputing. Notice that Jesus first deals with ethos by crossing a boundary and being real. And then he deals with a woman's emotional buy-in by asking questions, saying, your opinion, your, your, your buy-in is valuable to me, and by going deeper and by acknowledging pain. It's only at that point, after he's established his credibility as a person, after he's honored her interests as a person, it's only then that she trusts him enough to say, Here's the argument. Here's what I need to know about. Where does God want me to worship? And this was the issue that divided Jews and Samaritans. Because Jews said you worship in Jerusalem where God established his temple. That's what our Bible says. Samaritans said, the Bible, our Bible, doesn't say that you have to worship in Jerusalem, but it does mention Mount Gerizim. So that's why we worship here. 
And it's at that point when you are finally have established credibility and buy-in that you're able to deal with the argument that you just, quite frankly, need to answer foundational questions. What is the Bible? What does it say? What does it mean? And that's what Jesus does here. He endorses the Jewish understanding of the Bible as more than just the five books of Moses. And so implicitly he says, you're supposed to worship at Jerusalem, not Mount Gerizim. But what's interesting, he says, that's that's not honestly, according to the Bible, the biggest issue. The biggest issue in the Bible is not where you worship or how, it's who you are as a worshiper. Because God is more interested in your heart than in anything else. And if your heart is right, then the outward forms can take a number of different paths. But if your heart is not right, it doesn't matter. You could show up to church because your spouse dragged you here today, because your mama dragged you here today, because there's a good-looking girl that you want to date, and she goes here, and you're figuring, well, maybe she'll answer my phone calls. You know, I mean, you could come here for any number of wrong reasons. God doesn't care that you're in church if you're here for the wrong reasons. God cares about your heart. And if your heart is in the right place, don't tell Doyle and Connie, but you can skip church every now and then, not too often. Make sure to send your tithe check. But you know what I'm saying, okay? That's a joke, people. Just lighten up. Because in, in you're trying to persuade people, they're going to say, why, what should I believe and why should I believe it? And it's at that point that you have to bring in the Bible. You have to lay the foundation. This is the Bible. This is what it says. This is what it means. And that's what Jesus does. But there's one more point. You lay the foundations in Scripture, but then you have a come-to-Jesus moment. Now, I'm, I'm from southwest Missouri. Southwest Missouri, in the, in, the, in the great war between the states, the war of northern aggression, the Civil War, was Confederate-leaning, okay? We have a Confederate cemetery in Springfield. And so a lot of our culture is southern culture. If it can be grown in a field or shot in a forest, it can be fried. That is basically southern culture. We say y'all, we say yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. We say please and thank you. Um, Southern culture is even when you're being really vicious, you're nice about it. So you never call somebody an idiot to your face. What you do is you look at them and you, you say, oh, God bless your heart. <laughs> right? Because that way it looks, especially those Yankees, the Yankees don't know, God bless your heart. That means you're a blithering idiot. I can't even believe I'm talking to you. Okay? So we Southerners are very, very religious, too. And so we have come to Jesus. And come to Jesus means you are in trouble. My three kids are acting like little yard apes. Come to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is going to give you a spanking. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the way we typically use come to Jesus. What I mean is something very different. Come to Jesus doesn't mean you're in trouble and you're going to get disciplined. Come to Jesus means you're in trouble and you're going to get rescued. So notice what happens in this conversation at this point. Jesus has laid the foundation, said, this is the Bible, this is what it says, this is what it means. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. To be a persuasive Christian isn't to be persuasive about biblical values in the public square, even though that's important. To be persuasive as a Christian is not to be persuasive about all the issues in theology and ethics, even though that's important. To be a persuasive Christian is to be somebody who brings people to Jesus and shows how Jesus is the answer to the questions that they have at their deepest levels. 
Because what everybody wants out of life is to know that they are loved, accepted, and forgiven. They want to have a sense that this is the deep meaning of the universe, that they're not isolated, that they're not alone, that the universe, God, is on their side. And that's what Jesus tells us, because remember the story. The word became flesh, crossing the boundaries of heaven and earth and geography, of ethnicity and religion and sex, and getting down into those issues of respectability and sin and shame. God crosses all those boundaries in Jesus in order to bring us a life that flourishes and makes our lives filled with love and joy and peace. That's the Christian story. It's a good story. It's a beautiful story. It's a true story. And God invites us to be characters on the pages of that story. But we've got to put our faith in him. And at the end of the day, that's really what I most want to be remembered for. That's my biggest value in life is leading people to Jesus so they can experience what I have found. And the question is, is that... What's driving you? What is driving you? You want to be persuasive? Cross the boundary. Get real. Ask questions. Go deeper. Um, acknowledge the pain. Lay the foundations. But at the end of the day, when somebody has invited you into their, their life in order to address those deepest questions in life, bring them to Jesus. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you persuaded them of that, the other stuff can be negotiated. But Jesus is the most important thing. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your son who loved us and gave himself for us. Who left the comforts of heaven to take on a difficult life on earth. Among people who are often fractured and fractious. Caught in webs of sin and shame. And cycles of disgrace. Lord, we're thankful for all that he does for us, all that he is to us. And we pray simply that as we try to follow him in everything, we would try to follow him in persuading others that in fact he is the answer to their deepest questions. Give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we go throughout this week so that in every way and in every increasing measure, we can be more and more like your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.